Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. Learn more at fruitbowlpodcast.com. My grandfather had one of those like back vibrators and it was just always plugged in right next to his big like armchair that he would sit in. And so I was probably maybe six or seven when I remember taking that vibrator and just putting it on everything. And then when I put it on my penis, I was like, this is amazing. And I just didn't stop. My name is Alan. I'm 39 and I graduated high school in 1998. I grew up in California this fun little center of the, the triangle between Palm Springs, Los Angeles, and San Diego called the Inland Empire. Um, it was a really interesting mix of several different immigrant groups and like heritage festival Christians and Mormons. I happen to be one of the Mormons. This interview was recorded in October of 2019 in New York City. Be advised, this interview contains a detailed first-person description of childhood sexual abuse. From elementary school, middle school, high school, everything was shaded with some kind, there was always some conversation of religion. My family moved to where my mother's from, um, up in Idaho. So they went from a fairly conservative community to really fucking crazy. I want to say it's the second or third most conservative state in the United States. Mm. My parents love it. My dad is very much a ditto head. If you know what a ditto head is, it's someone who follows Rush Limbaugh um, regularly, every single day. And growing up, because that was my norm, because that was where I was surround, what was surrounding me, I too listened to Rush Limbaugh. Um, and I was so proud when I got a job and I was like 13 or 14 years old and I went and I bought a Rush Limbaugh Ditto Head tie that was just so cool. <laughs> and looking back, I remember it was like this hideous combination of every color you could possibly imagine in some kind of like weird psychedelic design and either either Rush was on acid or the artist was on acid, I don't know, but I thought it was the coolest thing ever and now looking back and I was like, what was I thinking? Not just politically, but from a fashion standpoint, it was the widest, like, we're talking like five, six inches wide tie. It was just so hideous, but I thought it was the coolest thing. Probably because I was so desperate to fit into my dad's expectations and fit into what he wanted from me. My grandmother describes my father as the self-aggrandized second coming of Jesus Christ. I think my dad's gay. And I think he escapes that by holding so tightly onto religion and holding so tightly to his Mormon belief system, that it doesn't matter who he hurts in the process as long as he's still faithful. Because the whole Mormon belief system is that this life is just a temporary test and if you're good and you're whatever, you'll get your own fucking planet. 
completely bonkers, but it's what motivates everything he does. And I think he's deeply unhappy, but doesn't know how to deal with that. And so growing up in that environment, I absorbed a lot of his unhappiness, a lot of his discomfort. And my mom, being the good wife, just follows along. I'm the oldest of seven children, six younger sisters, um, and there was this huge responsibility placed on me as the older brother, but also kind of like tossed aside because I'm the boy and I can figure everything out. And so at a really, really young age, I kind of had to be super independent because my mom was dealing with babies, quite literally. So I had to get a job really early. I had to, um, uh, any kind of school trips or whatever, I had to come up with a means to pay for that. Um, I got no financial assistance from my parents for college, for anything like that. But on top of all of that, Nothing was as good as being a good member of the church. And I haven't talked to my parents in almost three years now. Going to kindergarten, I think most schools do this. They have like a, an early day, like several weeks before school starts, where the parents bring the child into the classroom, to show in the classroom, introduce you to the teacher, this, that, and the other. And I was so headstrong and whatever that I would not let my mom walk me into my first day of kindergarten. And so I walked in and I was like, I know exactly where I'm going. And I walked into the ESL classroom next door and I sat down and I had no idea what they were saying. <laughs> um, but I saw a few things that I liked. And so at recess, this Latin boy with an earring was out playing tag and I was like, I want to play tag with you. So we started playing tag and it wasn't until years later that I realized that I had a crush on him and that it wasn't just like he was a cool kid and I wanted to play games with him. Like I loved him at my little five years old. Um, and so yeah, yeah, it was in kindergarten when I had that very first crush, I knew I was different. And I remember going to my grandma's house and getting, like, looking through her big giant chest of costume jewelry. And I found this necklace that looked just like this Latin boy's earring. And I asked my grandma, can I have that? There's a boy in my class that has something like it. And she's like, yeah, I'll take it. You know, enjoy. I remember going to kindergarten and wearing that necklace. And then when I told my mom why I had the necklace, she was like, you don't need that. And she took it from me. And I was like, well, that's weird. I mean, the, the Latin boy with the earring, that's still what I call him because I cannot remember his name, but I have the most fond memories of playing tag with him in the, the yard at my school. And I remember that like, I wanted so badly to connect to him, but I, n now I understand what that yearning was. At that moment, I just thought it was just a connection. My family was never really very wealthy. And for the longest time we had just antenna TV. That was it. Um, and it was maybe seven or eight when we first got cable. I was like, whoa, this is awesome. There's like 25 channels. This is so cool. But one of the channels was like this fuzzy thing. And if I watched it at a certain time of night, there were people fucking in the snow 
it was like this like weird colored snow and I could see what was going on. I could hear a little bit of the sounds and it aroused me even at like seven or eight. Like now I understand that's what arousal was. At the moment I was just like, this is exciting. <laughs> like a kid in a candy shop, but this is a very different kind of candy. And so I think that's when I was first really introduced to the concept of sex. And I remember actually in third grade being challenged by a friend of mine to draw what I thought sex looked like. Looking back, it probably looked more like a praying mantis than a naked woman. But I remember being called in by, by my teacher with my mom and trying to explain what I was doing. And I was like, we just didn't know what a woman looked like, so I tried to draw it. And my mom was like, how did you know what a naked woman looked like? And a part of me wanted to be like, because I showered with you forever. But also these fuzzy figures that I would see on this channel on TV. <laughs> I am an old millennial, I guess. Like the internet just really wasn't a thing in my early childhood. Even late childhood, it was barely starting in high school. So that just was not an option. So any kind of research, you, if you will, boiled down to going to the underwear aisle of Walmart and just like looking at these packages behind underwear <laughs> and being like, hmm, I wonder what's under there. Um, or literally going to the public library and looking up books on sex and sexuality and trying to understand a little bit more about it. And I vividly remember going <laughs> one time and like trying to disguise what I was doing as like research for a, a like school project on ancient Greece. And of course I got like every Greek homoerotic book that I could possibly find in my little conservative town's li uh, library. And I remember looking at uh, like the vase illustrations and being like, wait, you do what? <laughs> what happens? This is insanity. Why would anyone stick there in that? Ooh, gross. <laughs> but also somewhat intrigued. So the first time I had queer sex was, I was on a basketball team. My dad was one of the assistant coaches, then we had another coach and the coach had a 13-ish year old son and I was maybe eight years old, um, they invited me to come back to their house. And then the dad left, the, my, my basketball coach. So it was just the two of us. And he ended up, he wanted to take me to a secret fort, which was in the basement. He took me down into his basement and locked the door and said I had to blow him before I could leave. And so I was like, I can't do that. Jesus would not be proud. And I was like, no, I gotta go. Like, let me out. This is not happening. And then it got more aggressive and more forceful. Um, and so that was my first introduction to queer sex was a forced molestation situation. And there was a part of me that saw it as normal, minus the forced part. There was something about that that I knew was part of human existence, but I knew that what this man was doing was wrong. And as I grew older, that kind of became a pattern 
for me to be in these like really compromising situations. And the answer more and more became, if I just do what he wants, I can go. And so that at a very young age was my introduction to all sex, not just even queer sex, but to all sex was it being forced or an option of desperation, not pleasure. I feel like it's far more common than men will admit. Mm -hmm. Heterosexual, queer, gay, whatever they are. Which is why the older I've gotten, the more I've been like, nope, this happened, and I'm going to talk about it, and I'm going to say that it was wrong. For a number of years, I actually like blocked it out. It probably wasn't for another six to eight years later that I finally was like, oh, I need to confront this. That was really bad. I haven't found that person who did that to me initially. There's a part of me that wants to, to confront him. There's another part of me that's still fine having that in its box and away. I don't know, we'll see what time brings. I was in sixth grade and our school system sixth grade was in the middle school with the seventh and eighth graders and I was a little bit of a late bloomer so I hadn't quite started puberty in sixth grade. So I was a soprano in our choir and I was very good at it. <laughs> but one of the baritones in the choir was just a dirty pervert and would talk about all of these things and he kept talking about getting blowjobs just like there's no snow in Southern California. Why? What are you blowing snow off for? <laughs> I literally thought it was taking a machine down the sidewalk and like blowing the, sh the, the snow off the sidewalk. That's what I thought a blowjob was for the longest time. <laughs> and then he would talk about condoms and other this, that, and the other. And it was the next year that I was supposed to have sex ed and I still hadn't really had it. And I was just like, I don't know what a condom is. I need to find out. And so I went to the little thrifties, which is kind of like Rite Aid or whatever, but thrifties always had an ice cream bar in it. I used to go by thrifties just to get an ice cream on my way home from school, but this time I was like, I have two dollars and quarters. I'm going to find a condom and I'm going to buy it in a little vending machine. There were no vending machines in the bathroom and the box of condoms was way more than two dollars. And I was just so desperate to know what they were that I put it in my bag and I tried to walk out. Tried. I got caught and the guy pulled me into the back office and I immediately am like, I'm not gonna be able to go to church on Sunday because I'm gonna be in so much trouble. <laughs> and he calls my mom and my mom comes and picks me up and she's laughing as this guy is telling this story. And he's like, I just didn't even know what to do. He's like, well, you got your stuff back. Everything's good. And he's like, yeah, it's fine. And he starts laughing. And I'm like, why are you laughing at me? This is so embarrassing. Like, I feel bad. I'm a bad person. And then she takes me and drops me off with my dad who's working. And she's like, you're going to have a talk with your dad. He comes home and my mom and my sisters are all gone. Sits me on the bed and has this talk. And I'm like, what? That is just crazy. You do What? He's like, well, a woman has this, and a man has this, and they combine. And I'm like, that's just gross. That's utterly disgusting. Meanwhile, I, you know, already had my 
fair share of experiences by that point in time, um, but just with men. And my dad was very much the type of person that's like, you have to respect women. And because I had sisters, that was also another big conversation. Like, you have to respect women. It's super important. And so all of my respect context and, like, consent context was always around women. Never around men. Because we just didn't talk about it at all. But I just remembered looking at him and just laughing and by the end of the whole thing he's like if you ever needed to know what a condom is why didn't you just ask me and he opens his top drawer and like reaches back behind his socks and pulls out this whole giant big box of condoms and i was just like ew that means you and mom have sex and i was like of course because that's how we got here <laughs> My dad put so many rules on my interactions with girls. Like, I was never allowed to have a girlfriend over and in my room. If I ever had a girlfriend over, it had to be in the living room or it had to be in the front yard or backyard, but in some place open where everybody could see. But I never questioned anything when I had my boy friends over. And the door would be closed. And we'd be laughing and giggling or doing whatever. And so because there was that tacit permission in there, there was this part of me that thought, oh, well, I guess this is just a normal way that boys say hello. It was exploration. It was an extension of friendship and connection. And mind you, when you're really young, like, it's a lot of awkward groping and mouth placement and, like, just, it's just weird. <laughs> But in that moment, like that pitter-patter of the heartbeat and the, that anticipation and anxiousness that happens when you're next to a boy that you might like or might think might like you back, that just wasn't part of that conversation that I had with my dad. And I liked that feeling. And I feel like that's something... Even as someone who's near 40, like, I'd like to chase that feeling because it's, that's real to me. Whereas what my dad described was so ceremonial, for lack of a better word, so many boundaries on a sexual experience with a woman. But when it came to anything between guys, it was exploration. It was an extension of friendship and connection. I think I was in eighth grade. Uh, my mom's good friend from high school that she did theater with came to visit our family to say goodbye to my mom because he was in his final stages of, of AIDS and passing away. And I had taken a sex ed class and so I knew what HIV and AIDS was. And I remember meeting him and then going into the kitchen to get a glass of water. My mom followed me into the kitchen. And I, I just grabbed a glass out of the sink and went to like pour water in, in, in the glass and just drink out of it, even though it was probably used by somebody. My mom said, no, 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 don't use that one. That was his. And I remember dropping the glass and it breaking because I was so 
young and uninformed and unaware. And that, of course, led me to believe, okay, well, he must be gay. So there must be more gay people out there. And I remember being determined to never have that kind of reaction again because that wasn't fair because he was a human being and deserved respect. going into my freshman year, going into my acapella class, it was second period. This is so vivid for me because it was such a turning point in my life. I was a tenor and I sat down in the tenor section and our teacher um, introduced all of the section leaders and the tenor section leader stood up and he had this like straight, perfect, like at that time, I thought, amazing bowl cut. <laughs> but his hair was really, I mean, longer um, and just jet black. He stood up and introduced himself as Eric. And I was just like, Eric's one of us. I need to get to know Eric. Um, and three weeks later, I ditched class with him and went to his house. And we made out to Jurassic Park. And that was the first, like romantic same-sex experience that I had that wasn't just like boys fumbling in a sleeping bag and being exploratory. It was the first time that I was like, this is, this is more. And he was a couple years older than me. Um, so he started showing me all sorts of crazy things. Um, and uh, the first time we tried to have sex, um, anal sex, <laughs> It was after a show choir trip or something like that. I was in show choir. He was the band director for show choir. Um, and we came back to his house and it was, it had been in Burbank. And so the drive back was like two and a half hours and we didn't leave until like 12, one o'clock in the morning. So I wasn't getting back till three o'clock and then I had to be at school the next day. And my parents didn't want to wake up and take me there. So they asked me if I could spend the night at his house. And I was like, Oh, man, do I have to? <laughs> I was so excited, but I was just like, oh, but oh, that means I'm going to have to take an extra pair of clothes and everything. Darn it. So um, before we left on the trip, I left all my stuff at his house. But that night I was staying over at his house and we decided to that that was going to be our first time having sex. We're making out and whatever. And then I go to like get on all fours and he's like rubbing my back and touching me and goes to stick it in and ice cream. His mom knocks on the door and she's like, is everything okay? And yeah, I just fell off the bed. Sorry, I got spooked. <laughs> um, we didn't know what lube was. And so we tried to like dry dog it and that just does not work at all. Um, so that was, that was the first like really good super consensual, affectionate, romantic, gay experience that I had with having sex. And like, he was my first love. I was with him throughout most of high school. Um, even though he was just a couple years older than me, I feel like he was that, he was the first person that really was just, let me show you the ropes. Let me show you what you need to know because they didn't talk about it in sex ed. Didn't talk about it with my parents. Didn't talk about it at church. What I learned off the street was always straight. And, you know, of course I was confused. 
but he was the first person who was like, this is, this is what it is to be us. And so even, even now, like I look back at that experience as awkward and as stupid as it was as something really beautiful. The thing that I, I appreciate the most about it is even though he was still rather uninformed, he was willing to take that journey with me. We eventually learned how to have sex properly. Um, we discovered Lou, but I loved him. I really did. And it was, the, I think, probably one of the first times in my life where I felt like, you know, being the only boy in a family of so many women, and I love my sisters, I really wanted a brother. I just really wanted some guy that I could connect with. Mostly because my connection with my father was terrible, still is terrible. Um, and so I just, I felt like I didn't have a good guy friend, and I never got that, and I, most of my friends through elementary and middle school were girls because I was the different boy. Um, and he was the first guy that filled that void, and then I realized what that void was. It wasn't just that I wanted a guy friend, it's that I needed someone to love, and I couldn't love a woman the way I could love him. One of the most difficult things about probably any religious community, but in particular, I think the, the, the Mormon religious community becomes so insular. So there's Sunday services that are like three hours long. Then there's some kind of Sunday evening what they would call a fireside or some community get together gathering. There's Monday's family home evenings. There's Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday scouts or young adult activities or Friday or Saturday dance or brunch or luncheon or camping with the Boy Scouts or just with all of the, the young men. So it's like every day there's something. And so there's this built-in fear that if you leave the church, if you leave that community, you have nothing. And so the notion of coming out is really, really frightening. I served a Mormon mission and didn't say anything during the mission. I believed wholeheartedly in the purpose of that. And the purpose of it was to become a better person as an individual and to quote unquote, share the gospel. So it was really good at being a missionary, but there was this like constant internal struggle, constant. And I remember looking back into my diary and I, uh, my, my journal, um, where I would talk about my dragon and say, my dragon came back today. And that to me meant that the temptation came back. Um, I was tempted to look at a man lustfully and I never acted on it. Um, I didn't even masturbate, but when I came back from my mission, all I wanted was to be normal, to fit in, to get married, to have kids, to do what everybody wanted me to do. But I also loved dance and I loved theater and I loved performing. So I got a scholarship to the, the big Mormon university, um, Brigham Young University, and I went there. 
And I did my first year and I was on, on scholarship while I was there and it was fantastic, it was amazing. But I just couldn't lie anymore. And BYU has what's called an honor code. And the honor code is first and foremost that you will be honest. Second, that you will follow the teachings of Jesus Christ, meaning the church teachings. Down the list there somewhere is you won't be gay. <laughs> and I was like, but wait a second. I have to be honest, but I can't be gay. But I am gay, but I have to be honest. But what? how do I do this? And so I came to the decision that I am not going to run around wearing a big giant rainbow flag because that's problematic there. But if somebody asks me, I'm going to be honest. And the beginning of my third year there, fourth year, third year, fourth year, I was called into the honor code office because someone had written uh, an anonymous letter stating that I was prostituting myself. And I had to go in and answer to that. And I couldn't talk to anybody else. I couldn't address this person. I couldn't even say this is obviously some kind of weird retaliatory thing. And I had to be honest. And turns out the, the guy who does these inter, quote unquote interviews, they're, I mean, they're, they're not interviews. They are, it's an interrogation. They try to get you to slip up in any way possible if they think that you shouldn't be there. Um, so he asked questions about growing up. He asked questions about previous experiences. And despite the fact that I may or may not have repented and done what I needed to to repair it, um, he still wanted to know details about them. And it made me really uncomfortable in having to tell him these things. Looking back, I should have just said, it's none of your fucking business. It didn't happen while it was here. It didn't happen while I had agreed to the honor code. It's none of your business. I'm not answering these questions. But when he asked if my um, roommate was gay, I said yes. If he asked if I'd ever done anything with my roommate, I said nothing beyond what the um, law of chastity is. And the law of chastity, chastity in the Mormon church is basically that no sex before marriage or anything resembling sex or close to sex. So like they call it heavy petting, mutual masturbation, no oral sex, no anal sex, none of that, like at all. And I said, no, I, I followed the, the law of chastity. I've, I've not done anything. But that does that mean you've kissed a man? And I was like, yes, I've kissed a man. He's like, well, you know, that's not tolerable, right? And I'm like, but I'm following the law of chastity. Like, I did. What do you want here? Eventually, to make a long story short, I got kicked out of the university and labeled a predator nice. by the university. My religious leaders, my bishop and state president, all came to my defense to the university and were like, no, he's doing everything he's supposed to do. He's like, we see him as an upstanding member of the church. I don't know why you're doing this. And the university was like, see right here, this line, he's gay. He admitted to it. We can't have that here. And so that was this huge, huge rejection. And I like fell into this massive slump, super deep depression, probably lasted five, six plus years. And I could never tell my parents about all of it. I just told them that I decided to quit and that's it. And to this day, they don't, I don't think they know how bad it was and how much it broke me as a person. That's kind of when I started my escape from this crazy conservative cult. I had the chance to have some really amazing theater people in my life. And of course, theater people are like, duh, I get it. There's gay people in the world. It's fine. 
And even though many of them were Mormon, they just didn't care. And God, I'm going to get emotional about this, but I got really lucky as soon as I moved to Utah that I had this family that adopted me. Um, and I lived with them for a short period of time because as a result of getting kicked out of BYU, I lost my job at the university and the university housing kicked me out. So I was homeless, unemployed, and kicked out of my university all in the matter of two weeks. And this family adopted me, brought me in, and this was my whole experience at BYU, they were there. Um, and all of their close friends and other theater people, and they really became the family that I'd always wanted. This smart, fun, loving family that, that loved you no matter what. They really took that, that notion of unconditional love to the furthest extent were an example of what that was. And so that's this family that I went to and all of them happened to work with Sundance Film Festival. So I went to the film festival and experienced all kinds of wonderful debauchery. <laughs> um, met John Cameron Mitchell up there, met um, Alan Cumming, met Lucy Liu, um, Natalie Portman and I danced together on multiple nights. It was amazing, it was so much fun. But all of these folks at the Sundance Film Festival were just like, be who you are. Not even be who you want to be. Just be who you are. Just be authentic. Be real. And that was so comforting, but so frightening. Coming from this super restrictive environment, um, but then being able to just experience the world. None of it was viewed as bad, but there was this internal me that was like, no, this is wrong. I'm not supposed to do this because that's how I was trained. I was uh, living abroad. I was living in, in Paris and I joined the local swim team and I was at swim practice and I was doing laps in the pool and this guy, we started like talking while we were waiting our, our turn on laps and then we went into the, the locker room and I had somehow misplaced my towel. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know where my towel is. What's going on? He's like, oh, here, borrow mine. So I'm standing next to him, like toweling off and talking and this, that, and the other. And he asks if I want to go for drinks. And I was like, well, I don't really drink very much because I was still, I was out, but I was also like, I still had this Mormon shadow in the back of my head and alcohol was just something that I didn't venture into until I was like 25, 26. And so we went out and he offered to buy me a glass of champagne. And I was just like, it sounds really fancy. And I feel like that's not like real alcohol. So yes. And he, you get the champagne and I take the first sip of it. This is also like my first time drinking too. <laughs> so they're, they're all together. Um, so I take my the, the sip of the, the champagne and I'm like, oh my God, this is disgusting. This tastes like mildewed water. I don't understand why someone would drink this. And he just starts laughing at me and was so sweet. And I think the minute I was just like, oh, I like this was in that moment he was laughing and he put his hand like on my upper thigh. And it was just like, is this, this is okay? We can do this? Like, we can do this in public? And I was so shocked that he was open enough to do that, that actually drew me into him even more. And we continued talking and really hit it off and he invited me to come back to his place. And so I went back to, to his place and like before we even really got in the door, we were making out and then clothes end up everywhere. 
And we ended up having this amazing experience together. And it just, it felt like something that I wanted forever. And I was like, why did it take me having to move to another continent, go through all of this bullshit that I've been through to finally get to a place where I can just meet someone and know that this is someone I can click with, even if it is just for one night. We ended up like seeing each other for months after that, but like that initial moment, I, I remember laying in bed next to him. We were both naked and my arm was like over his and I was just like looking at his face. I remember looking at him as he, as he was sleeping and just going, this is normal, this is right, this is okay. And that was, that was a big discovery for me, um, that you can meet people in public, it's normal, it's fine, and it's okay. I mean, I graduated high school the year that Matthew Shepard was murdered. That was in the back of my mind. I met my mom's friend who, you know, died of HIV AIDS. I grew up in a church that, like, said I was a devil for being gay. And, you know, all of those different experiences condemned who I was. But this was the first time that all the lights were green. And I just, I got to experience what it was. And I was like, I am not burning in hell for this. Because nothing that feels this right and feels this good and feels... And I don't mean feels good in, like, the let's get off sense. But I mean, like, that calm, settling feeling when you feel that comfort with someone. When you can lay there in utter silence with them and it still feels right. Like, nothing can feel that right and be wrong. And that was that, that first time for me. I moved back and forth between Utah and Idaho several times. And at one point in time, there was this um, boy that I met. He too had served a mission. Um, we had both served our missions in Africa. I was 25, 26, and both had gone to BYU. Both had fairly similar you know, upbringings um, and similar ambitions. And even at that point in time, after I'd left the church and all of that, there was still this part of me that wanted someone in my life who, who got me, who got that experience, because I feel like it would become easier to understand my anxieties, easier to understand my stresses, easier to explain my stories to someone who'd been through something similar. And we really hit it off, I thought. And probably about six months into it, he said he needed to go. Um, and not just like he needed some space or needed some time or whatever, but like he needed to cut everything off because he was going back to church. And I remember, I love Bjork, she's amazing. Um, I remember listening to, it's called Overture and it's in one of her albums, and it's it's purely instrumental. It's this beautiful horn song, and it has like these, this like sad, I don't wanna say sad climax, but it's it's, it's a like lamenting climax to the to music. 
And I remember listening to that as like my morning song <laughs> because I really liked this kid and we got along so well. And the connection that we had, it was something that I could see myself in for years and years to come. Like someone that I could start a life with. Um, and as devastated as I was when we, we broke up, I didn't realize that I loved him like that, but I was just, I was broken. Just really, really broken. I just remember sobbing and I was mourning the loss of that potential life that I saw with him um, and mourning the connection that we had. And it was so hard. And I know that we were talking about like the first time you fell in love, but I, you know, love is also heartbreak and that heartbreak was really important too to to teach me that even though we're so guarded as queers even though we're we always have some kind of wall up that sometimes you have to let that wall down to experience that anticipation those butterflies that anxiousness that excited feeling you feel when you first lay down with that someone or when you might be able to kiss that person and in order to be able to be open to that, I have to let all the other walls down, which means I have to be really vulnerable. Mm -hmm. um, and in that moment with him, I realized how important that was. And there was a part of me that like wanted to vow never to be that vulnerable again, but another part of me that was like, these highs and lows are totally worth it because of just the beauty of all of it. The beauty of the the connection that we had and the stories that we were able to tell that we, we shared. But then also that supreme release listening to Bjork in my room as I'm sobbing was, I think that's really one of the most beautiful moments of pain that I've ever experienced in my life. And it was because I was willing to be open and vulnerable and willing to really fall in, really fall in love. And I think that takes allowing yourself to be put at risk in order to truly fall in love. The most embarrassing thing ever happened in this very room. There's this adorable Greek boy in the neighborhood that I met on Grindr and we talked a few times and... God, I can't believe I'm sharing this. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I do like a good bottom does and I get ready to have him come on over and we're getting into it and clothes come off and get thrown everywhere and I you know appropriately throw the towel down and he lays down and he's like I want you to ride me and I'm like okay fine I'm, I'm down I'm ready for it and we're going at it and I'm like huh something's moving <laughs> hang on just a second and I'm just want to like go in the bathroom and do a quick little checkup. And I go to lift my leg up and just everything comes out, just all of it, all over him. And it was the most mortifying experience. Gay sex is so gross, but I love it. Like it, it and it's funny because <laughs> this is what his response was to all the tops out there. If you don't have this response when a bottom has that issue, you're an asshole. He said, if you knock on shit's door, he's going to answer. It's okay. 
you're fine. Let's clean up and keep going. <laughs> I was too mortified to keep going. Um, and he was just like, that's okay too. It's totally fine. This is, this happens. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah, but we still talk and send dirty pictures. <laughs> <laughs> My best move in bed is that I can get pretty much anyone to moan and like cringe in the good way um, while rimming them. I've had many a bottom tell me I rim better than their tops. I feel like it depends on the combination of bodies. Um, I'm not the smallest person on earth, so I tend not to be comfortable in like super crunched positions. And it depends on the bottom. If the bottom is a bigger bottom, then like where are you more comfortable? I I do love having him on the edge of the bed with his feet up and me on the floor, like leaning into his ass. Like that's great. If our body combinations work out and we're on a surface that it works, um, I do also love him laying on his stomach, legs wide open, and me being able to lay down, like, in his ass and go for it. A lot of us in the queer community, I think we use sex as a substitute for connection. Um, we use sex as a crutch. And so it just becomes void of those kinds of emotions and the kind of excitement that I felt when I had that first makeout with Eric while we were watching Jurassic Park. Um, and the, that kind of endorphin rush that you get when you're getting closer and closer and closer and then you finally get to like touch and then you finally get to kiss and then you finally get to put his penis in your mouth. <laughs> I really do love the chance encounter. I love being out and meeting somebody and feeling the connection and feeling that vibe that you get and you go through that whole impromptu non-choreographed experience all over again. Um, because it's a repeat, you're constantly looking for a little bit more of that thrill and you're trying to add things to it. And so you, you know, add poppers or you add some other drug or you add some kink or you add this, that, and the other to try to get to constantly chase that endorphin high that you felt when you were 15, making out with a boy in front of Jurassic Park. <laughs> But you can't ever really recreate that if you're not willing to go through the risk that's involved in being vulnerable and, and, and being in a spot where you can possibly feel that rejection. And so as much as I love hooking up, and I'm not going to shame this in any way, shape, or form because it's great. Like, sometimes meaningless sex is is fucking fantastic. Um, and there's something amazing about 
meeting a complete and utter stranger and then 25 minutes later being like, thank you for leaving your load in me. There's, there's something fantastic about all of that. But by the same token, I try to caution myself to allow room for the other stuff to happen because that's, that's, that's the genuine connection and that's the important part. If there's anything I took away from my conservative Christian background, it's that moderation in all things is actually a, a good lesson. Now, you can never have enough dick, but I can only go to so many sex parties before it's just nothing. Like this last weekend, I got to meet this guy that I we hooked up a couple times, but this time, I don't know what it was. It was really different. And I like actually felt that like, wow, this is good. Like there was that same type of moment where he was laying on his back, my arm was around him. And I was like, this is right. To me, it's the most natural, real thing on earth. The coolest part is when you get that regular fuck buddy that you know what each other likes, but you're not worried about the, about the strings. The emotions are there in the moment. Like you really get to have like a really raw emotional experience in that moment, but you know exactly what each other wants and you kind of get the best of both worlds. And I, I mean, and for that same reason, like, I actually really enjoy having sex with my friends. Friends that get it, like that get that, like this is just sex or that sex is an extension of our friendship. It's another way to have fun with your friends. I've got this great circle of friends down in Philadelphia. And every time we get together, at some point in time or another, it turns into a big old orgy. And like in the middle of the orgy, like someone can tell a joke and we'd all just like roll back and start laughing or da 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 da. There's nothing awkward about it at all. And that type of hookup experience is so much better than the rando on Grinder. It's okay to say no. Even still to this day, like there'll be situations where I'm just not feeling it anymore or I don't want to anymore, whatever. And I just do it because it's easier to do it than say no and leave or try to get them to leave or whatever it is. Regardless of what the social impact is, you're still in the right to say, no, I don't want this. And I think more queer people need to hear that. Because I feel like there's a, there's a group of gay men, cis men in particular, that still prescribe to the sense of entitlement in sex. And it's one thing if, if that's the role play, if, if, if the passive and submissive thing is, is part of your role play and that's part of your kink and you're very aware of what you're doing, that's one thing. There's another thing when that's kind of forced on you, but I didn't learn that lesson probably until like four or five years ago and I'm almost 40. And so knowing that you do have the power to say no, you do have the power to, to walk away from a sexual experience, I think that's really empowering and to take control of your own sexuality. There's a difference between pleasing a partner because you want to please a partner and pleasing a partner because you have to please that partner or you feel like you have to please a partner. There's nothing on earth that says you have to please the partner. Nothing. Um, if you're not having fun, stop. On a more jovial note, I would say lube is your best friend. Learn how to use it frequently, whether it's masturbating or playing with your butt, like use lube. It's a really, really amazing tool. <laughs>
the family that I've chosen here in New York City, a lot of us um, are nudists and queer nudists. Um, we don't particularly love the term nudist. We go by nudies um, just because there's something a little playful and silly about it and normalizing. I think one of the coolest things about, and sorry, this is going to be a shameless plug, uh, about our organization, Go Naked. Um, you can check out our website, gonaked.co, C-O, not com, dot co. The big objective of the organization is to create those connections before sex and to see the naked body as not a sexual object, but just as who we are. And I really think um, the queer community in general would do so much better and be so much more inclusive and understanding by getting naked with each other. And this goes back to the vulnerability thing. Like we struggle with being vulnerable with each other. And I think being naked in front of someone is very vulnerable. And the way we escape that vulnerability is like, oh, let's just fuck. Because then we don't have to talk about all of our insecurities and being naked with each other. And so being a nudie allows me to see my friends in a vulnerable state. And, and it allows me to be able to look at my body and be like, oh, it's normal. These lumps, these rolls, these scars, this hair, this whatever it is, is normal. And seeing my trans brothers and sisters naked, I get to say, hey, well, that's normal too. And it helps us connect on a more genuine level without this expectation of sex. That idea of social nudity is so powerful that I think it even makes sex better particularly at the events that we host, like they're usually in a bar, usually at a beach or someplace really public where you can't just like go for it. And so you get to be naked with someone invulnerable and be able to connect with them. We don't allow phones at all, which I love because you can't bury your head in it. No one's taking pictures, so you feel safe. And then you have to have a conversation. But then when you get to have sex with them after you've gotten to know who they are, it just... There's something so profoundly genuine. When you take them inside of you after knowing their, their story, like it's just even, it's even better. I would highly encourage anybody and everybody, get naked. Fruitful interviews are edited for clarity and brevity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com where you can learn more about this episode, browse the episode archive, and watch original videos. Help support Fruit Bowl's efforts to collect, archive, and share personal stories about queer coming of age by making a small monthly donation through Fruit Bowl's Patreon membership. Patrons get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, and occasional bonus content. Larger donations and sponsorships are tax-deductible through Fruit Bowl's fiscal sponsorship with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. Fruit Bowl collects histories from all different backgrounds and experiences. Cisgender women, trans and genderqueer individuals, Black people, Indigenous people, and people of color. It's only by collecting diverse stories that we can begin to see what unites us. Interested in sharing your story? Find out more about the interview process, including a full list of questions and news about feature production. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com for links and contact information. Fruit Bowl is created, produced, and edited by Dave Quantic. <laughs>
I'm Syra B. This has been a production of Cubed Media, LLC. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening.